1: It was always hard in history to stand up against discrimination, brutal acts, pogroms, sexual violence. We are at the
0: point where you have to stand up. Palantir CEO, Alex Karp. Why he's at the World Economic Forum in Davos standing up against anti-Semitism and why he's urging his fellow leaders to speak up for their beliefs.
1: If you spent the last five years lecturing us about all sorts of things that no one believes you believe in private, you can't just wake up the
0: next day and say, oh, I can't speak about this thing I believe, or or say I have no opinion. Palantir's software is at our borders, in our government, and in war zones in Ukraine and Israel. Alex Karp knows the intersection of tech and geopolitics, and he's raising a warning.
1: Anti-Semitism, as a kind of prejudice, has always been the canary
0: in the coal mine for your society isn't working, your university isn't working. CARP is calling for change in the Western world, starting with higher education. We have a very large
1: focus on what we pay, not what comes out. In tech,
0: we have an absolute myopic
1: focus on what comes out, not what goes in. And like, our institutions have to move from what
0: did we spend to what did we get. Our Squawk Box team is on the ground where tech and politics and humanity meet at Davos with Palantir's Alex Karp. That was fabulous. Beyond. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Squawk Pod reports from Davos. Palantir CEO Alex Karp begins right now. World leaders, business leaders, and tech leaders, all at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, and many of them are stopping by our CNBC set. This interview is with Palantir CEO Alex Karp, who swung by the Alps for just a day. This year, he's a busy guy.
2: So where are you off to next? I know you just came back from Israel. I'm back
1: to America.
0: Palantir is all about data analytics and machine learning, and the company has famously—or infamously—worked with state actors, including U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. The U.S. Department of Defense is a client. The company provides technology to militaries, like in Israel, where it's partnered with the Israeli Defense Ministry to aid in the country's war effort, and in Ukraine. Palantir software helps military leaders interpret drone and satellite imagery. Its visual recognition algorithms, according to a Ukrainian commander who spoke to Time magazine, helped target. Russian military logistics centers with speed and precision. Palantir also has a product that combines the machine learning technology uses for military operations around the world and the large language models or LLMs that are used by artificial intelligence tech like ChatGPT. Palantir CEO Alex Karp sat down with Andrew Ross Sorkin in Davos.
2: Alex, thank you for joining us.
1: I'm very happy to be here. So here we are in Davos, Switzerland, but you just got back from a trip to Israel. Television. Did. Yeah. What did you see? The main reason I went is because we corporate leaders, especially corporate leaders who are running public traded companies, need to stop just parroting things we don't believe uh, when it's popular and then being silent when it's a little more controversial. What do you mean by that? Well, we have all these. We had a movement I think is fading away, largely understood as wokeism, where people said, quite frankly, in public, lots of things that no one believed they believed in private. Now with Israel most people in positions of authority realize that what happened on october 7th was one of the worst terror attacks the west has ever seen arguably the worst terror worst act of terrorism and sexual barbarism the world has seen in a hundred years and it is incumbent uh, on us to actually not only speak loudly in private but occasionally show what we mean in public and so core to defending the west for me was not just me going to Israel. I'm very well known there. Our products are used there. I'm proud of that. But bringing the whole board and saying, look, you know, you can you can debate lots of things about Israel, but the people who are attacking it are calling into question the very existence of a thoroughly democratic Western country that is defending our rights. And we cannot just speak loudly in private. And one of the key issues that you find, including here, is You know, people want to talk about rebuilding trust, the elite. No one trusts the elite. Yes, but how could you trust the elite if everything you're saying is a half-truth at best?
2: You ran a full-page ad in the New York Times after uh, the tragedy that we saw in Israel. You were the only company that I saw do anything like that. What was the reaction to that from your fellow CEOs?
1: Um, Look, there are a lot of people who are like, you're beep-beep crazy you're going to get in a lot of trouble a lot people are going to call up and yell at you and my reaction to them was is never again mean I never take the risk of my own career it's like it was always hard in history to stand up against discrimination brutal acts pogroms sexual violence it, 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 we are at the point where you have to stand up and you know the interesting thing is in private, a lot of people agree with me. Their position is, but you can't say it in public because you'll offend something, someone. And this is exactly wrong. You can no longer live in a world where you are not saying something that will offend, you only say things that will offend no one. Like, you, if you're going to defend something, you right. have to defend it. But then what's your view about companies that were speaking out on lots of other social issues that I think you don't think that they believed in? So the, the, core, the core reason... Why people who are basically decent, wonderful people in America have basically no trust in the elite is everyone senses that they spoke out on things they actually don't believe on, believe in, and they set a precedent. The precedent that they set was, I'm going to speak out about moral causes. Okay, now you have one of the crucial moral cause. Like you can be against what I'm saying. You could, you could be against standing with Israel. You can't say you don't have an opinion you have an opinion on this you have fallen on your head and like and if there are people in corporate america who say look i never have an opinion my opinion is the shareholders i actually am sympathetic with them but if you spent the last five years lecturing us about all sorts of things that no one believes you believe in private you can't just wake up the next day and say oh i can't speak about this thing i believe or say i have no opinion and it is crazy ridiculous, and it undermines the fabric of our democracy because no one believes it.
2: Let me ask you about what's happening here in Davos, because one of the conversations that we have not seen in large part is one about what's really happening on the ground in Israel, a conversation about anti-Semitism, the same conversation that's happening in institutions all over the world, but it doesn't seem to be here yet. It seems so very limited.
1: Davos has an important function. I live on a different planet. Like, On the planet I live in, climate is important, fighting, bigotry of all kind is important. The most important issue of our time is war and peace. And the absolute most important metaphor for that is, what do you think about what happened in Israel? And by the way, anti-Semitism as a kind of prejudice has always been the canary in the coal mine for your society isn't working, your university isn't working you're not providing real growth to your population. And because you're not explaining why it doesn't work, you just go blame the Jews. And so like any, any enterprise that's about making the world a better place that doesn't deal with these issues is basically saying, I'm not really engaging in the problem. And this is not just a problem here. It's a problem with all sorts of institutions from our higher education to uh, fake discussions in corporate America to international conferences. And like, I don't know why it falls on me to say the obvious. Can you speak to your
2: recruiting efforts and how you're changing them in terms of where you plan to recruit people from and how you think about uh, the, what used to be uh, the most prestigious schools in America?
1: Look, Palantir, in all modesty, has been way ahead of the curve. We test everyone. You went to Harvard, we test you. You went to University of Colorado, you went to community college, we retest you. In the 50s in America, if you were a Yale degree, uh, a Yale alum, and you got retested, you'd be offended. The, the legitimacy of our institutions is so much weaker, everybody's going to move to our methodology. You have to retest. Until we reform our institutions, I don't know what a grade is. I know what our test is. And we, what, when you say reform our institutions, what does that mean? Look, across, across democracy in the West, we have a, very fo- a large focus on what we pay, not what comes out in tech we have a lot, like an uh, absolute myopic focus on what comes out not what goes in right. and like our institutions have to move from what did we spend to what did we get and that's very very scary because the the outcomes are are unfair and that's why i'm actually a card carrying still a card carrying progressive because we have to take care of the people who are not going to benefit from the ai revolution who are not going to participate who need remediable help But like the reality of what the west needs to do in every institution is It does not matter what you spend. It matters what you get. And by the way, if there's one lesson of software, the single thing that America does better than any other country, it's not input, it's output.
2: Can I ask you about the power and influence of America today? I spoke to Tony Blinken, Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State yesterday, and we talked about all of these different challenges, whether it's Israel, Ukraine, China. And the question is, are these idiosyncratic challenges that emerged on their own or did they emerge because of a power vacuum? And this is the critique of what's happening in the United States, of the, the polarization politics of the United States, and that, that, the, that the American influence isn't what it used to be.
1: Let me give you a different riff on this. It's very confusing to the outside world. On the one hand, we are at 84% of the top 50 uh, tech companies in the world are American. And in 10 years, it's going to be more like 90%. We are absolutely dominant. Part of the reason corporate America likes this kind of, I tell you fake things and you believe it, you become a product is they want to hide everyone who's winning is in a small group of people almost all in America. So that's, that, that creates a huge problem with China because we are actually winning and they are not. Then we need a way of robustly defending ourselves rhetorically and militarily that is not jingoistic, that is not xenophobic. And we, we those people who have a classic playbook don't really know how to do this. They don't know how to say, yes, we need a border and it shouldn't be a xenophobic border. Yes, when somebody takes American hostages, we go after the person who organized it. Right. You, you need a robust, non jingoistic way, by the way, powered by software, because that's the single thing we do better than Iran, we do better than Russia, we do better than China. Um, let's
2: just go around the world and talk about the state of play. Ukraine, you're working with Ukraine, you've been working with Ukraine for a very long time now. There's $50 billion they're waiting for from the United States. What do you think is going to happen?
1: Look, I don't know what the Congress is going to do. I, I talk to people all over America, some of whom are skeptical. You have to move away from the intellectual arguments and think of this as it's like prison. We show up there we will be taken advantage of not just by Russia, but by Iran and by China. So even if you do not agree with what Biden's doing, what I happen to think we should do, you cannot afford the precedent of the West loses and we should do whatever we can to help. And then if you go around. the
2: Yeah. Well, lose asked this. I spoke to President Zelensky yesterday about what his future would look like if uh, former President Trump becomes the president again. I'm curious what you think of that question. The-
1: you know what? You don't want to fix the box in the next uh, president of the United States. You ha- we have to figure out a way to make these things work.
2: Israel, how much longer does this go on? And is there a way to effectively eradicate Hamas without more civilian casualties, um, Palestinians?
1: Despite what you may be learning at your institution of higher learning, this is all about making Iran feel that this is no longer acceptable. At the moment Iran feels the cost is too high, this will change and there's no other way to change it. And so I don't know what that point when that happens, but what America and Israel have to figure out a way to do is signal strength while reducing human casualty. It's very, very hard to do. Can
2: you imagine a two-state solution where the Israelis trust the security without some form of
1: occupation for a period of time. We are so far away from those discussions. Well, actually, there will be no real discussion until the hostages are free. So like right now, it's like the hostages have to be freed. Hamas has, has to be taken apart. And then there will be a discussion. Look, it's gonna take a lot of trust building to make anything like that work. And I don't know when that happens. State of play, China, Taiwan. I'm more worried about China than almost anyone I know, but it's more mainly because the Chinese economy is clearly going to underperform the American economy. And if America actually begins to invest as much as we should in AI-related defense systems, every day that goes by, we get stronger. And the obvious reaction to that about it from a dictator is to say, oh, wait, I'm stronger today than I will be tomorrow. And so I'm structurally more worried about that than most people. Perhaps
2: one of the other big topics here, not geopolitical, but technology and innovation, is AI. Can't go down the street without somebody talking about AI. Sam Altman is here. Uh, he's become an it boy, if you will, of the AI movement. How do you see large language models both working with
1: and maybe even competing against Palantir? I mean, look, our U.S. product, I'm not here to push our pride, but it's like it's growing so quickly that we, we're going to have to rebuild the whole company. And the reason it's growing very so quickly is In the military, the beginning of the AI revolution was not large language models, it was in the military. And we learned a lot of lessons there that are people learning now. Currently for a business, a large language model looks a little bit like self-pleasuring. If you wanna move from self-pleasuring to transforming your business, you're gonna have to learn how to manage that model and integrate it into the logic and knowledge of your enterprise. You won't be able to do that as well as you can do with Here.
2: It appears that you may be uh, on the trajectory to becoming part of the S&P 500. What does that mean to you?
1: Well, look, we are, we, we've been profitable now for quite a while. W- one never knows how they decide to select people, but we are, we, are, we are committed to being profitable. We're a very strong cut. Look, the problems that exist now on the battlefield in, in the intellectual arena, arena and in the U.S. commercial especially are completely pounder shaped problems. It's very important for our customers that we have shown the financial strength we have, significant profitability, billions of dollars in the bank, growth. That would be nice too. And so, but it's, it's a lot about saying, look, you're going to rely on us. So if you're relying on somebody, you'd like to know they're strong and we're strong. When, When you think about the business,
2: briefly, when we were talking about AI, you said at some point, we're just gonna have to remake the entire business. What does
1: that mean? Um, he, he, look when you the the, the the shape of problems now is how do you move soldiers around? how do you move missiles around? how do you rebuild your enterprise the the, the, the differentiated value of of enterprises is going to come completely down to can you do that? and that is so strong on the outside that, of course, it's, re- it's changing how we do things on the inside. And what does that mean? Well, we ha- our go-to-market has to be different. We're doing all the We did hundreds of boot camps last year as compared to, like, 72 uh, pilots the year before. It's just a question of embracing the fact that the revolution is bigger than we are. Alex Carp, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me. That was fabulous. Oh, fabulous.
2: Beyond. <laughs>
0: Andrew discussed his interview with Alex Karp, with his fellow Squawk Box anchors, Joe Kernan and Becky Quick.
2: I got to tell you, love I you love guys. talking to him every year here I love because, it. Yeah. I mean, he, he speaks the truth. He he speaks his fearless, truth. Fearlessly. He's fearless about it. And, in, in, and, in, and he does it with a nuance. It's not a, you know, it's it's not a one way or the other. He's thoughtful. He's very thoughtful. He's so thoughtful. Yeah. You know, yeah. he's a progressive and yeah. he says a lot of things that,
3: I think, uh, you know, don't sound Joe, like you're, you're,
2: you're nodding uh, but, but, along with. No, I'm just no, saying it's very interesting
3: that we we conservatives think we are the true progressives because we want to move things forward. We don't want to throw a wrench in the works and ruin everything, which is what my view. Progressive policies are regressive, in my view. But it, at the very beginning, you know, I love that part. The part I like best was about Colorado because he, he was saying it. Oh, a, he was saying it because, in a it's, a nice always, way. because it's about you. No, no, yes. no, no. Because he was saying, all right. You you got Harvard, and and then you got community colleges in Colorado. So he was kind of saying it like that's... Joe's alma mater, for those of you who are And Then he actually said, but I might get the... He basically was saying, I can get maybe a better person. We need to test them all, because there's no difference. And no, but I... You you wait long enough, even my alma mater is going to become like Ivy League, or at least... I don't think he meant it that way, but that's where I ended up nodding and laughing.
0: No, but, but he, look, he... Go Buffs! He'll say what go whatever he Coach thinks. Coach Prime. And does not worry about the yep. fallout from it. So, no, it, in the beginning, race. you know,
3: the beginning was a part I like that. Because how, I mean, I, I've needled you a, a few times about signaling, not you, but but that contingent of people that say <laughs> the right thing, but don't believe any of it. I mean, once people got fired for misgendering someone... But not for saying from the river to the sea, you knew things were screwed up. I I don't
4: disagree with you. Okay. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast.
0: Thank you for listening to this special Squawk Pod Reports from Davos. There are so many more conversations from the 2024 World Economic Forum coming to this podcast feed. Make sure you have your automatic downloads engaged so you catch every episode. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Squawk Pod is produced by me, Katie Kramer, Cameron Costa, and Caroline Rehodis. John Lazration is our editor. Have a great day.